I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and this is Podcast Playlist. The human mother and her young, at home in the nursery. The mother winds up the mobile to put the baby down for nap time. The parents, in an effort to save money, got their mobile secondhand, and it's slightly out of tune. At this age, the baby will sleep as much as 16 hours a day, which makes bedtime a frequent occurrence. The baby is protesting. That's a frequent occurrence, too. She is a devoted mother, but the screams of the baby are trying her patience. The family dog has heard the mother's frustration and now enters the room to try to help. But the effort backfires. Hear how the mother uses singing to soothe the baby. Finally, she's asleep. Or at least she was. Sometimes, being a parent can make you feel like you're living in a nature documentary. It's beautiful, of course, but it can feel challenging and isolating. So it's nice to hear stories about how other people are managing it. So today on Podcast Playlist, it's an episode for all the exhausted parents out there. We've got stories about raising kids of all ages in all kinds of different family situations. Some might make you laugh, some might make you cry, but hopefully they'll all remind you why it's all worth it. For people who choose to become parents through adoption, the process can be long and difficult. And it was especially daunting for Liam Lowry and Marissa Carroll. Liam is trans, and he and Marissa knew that might complicate things when it came to meeting prospective birth parents. They told their story to Anna Sale on death, sex, and money. I was grappling with um, coming out to myself as trans when I was, a, you know, a teenager, and around that same time, there was a really big um, on Oprah. You may remember this person Oprah referred to as the pregnant man, uh, Thomas Beatty. I thought about seeing everything, and then I saw a pregnant man. Thomas and his wife, Nancy, announced on our show that they were having a girl. They invited our cameras to come along for an ultrasound. That's the heartbeat. That was my introduction to, um, okay, so you're a trans, trans-masculine person. You know, this is a trans-masculine person who's, who's a parent. 
um, and this is what their path is like. And I just the way that he was presented, and it was a very you know sensationalized, tabloidy. Um, it was really uh, disconcerting for me as a young person and feeling like, oh, okay, well that's not that's not what I wanted want to do, um, but also that's the way that I'll be viewed or talked about um, mm -hmm. if I choose to be a, a parent and I am transgender. So did your teenage self feel like you had to choose between wanting to be a parent and living openly as a trans person? Exactly. I felt like if I make this choice, if I, if I live as a trans person in this world, parenting is probably not going to be an option for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, and what makes me, what, what makes me emotional and what makes me in this moment shed a little tear in hearing you say that is that anyone who meets Liam would know that he has what it takes to be a wonderful parent. And that's true in raising our son together, but just knowing him, he's so kind and loving and thoughtful and all the things that you want someone to be. So just the idea that it was so, um, the idea that you felt like you weren't, weren't worthy or that you would be, um, not accepted is just so it's horrible. Mm. I appreciate it, but that's why, I mean, that's why it's important to me now to update and talk about this because I know because I've looked for them <laughs> that there aren't necessarily a lot of happy stories about trans people, period, but let alone involving parenting, you know? When they were telling their story to introduce themselves to birth parents in the hopes of adopting a child, they had to consider whether being totally honest was a risk worth taking. But then it did present, it, it obviously presents questions about how you, um, how you share and talk about your family and how we see ourselves. I think if you were to look at us in a picture, I think you could say, um, uh, and knowing nothing about us, it's possible that you would think that we pass as a straight cisgender couple. Mm -hmm. So if I were to see the portfolio that you put together about your family, I would see the Mets, I would see the beach, and would I, would I see that we are a queer couple and here's how we each identify and here was, like, how much did you choose to include? We, I mean, we did include that I'm trans. And part of that decision for us was because we thought, well, the whole point of this is being honest and trying to make a connection. And what's that story like if we don't disclose my gender identity, which is such a big, you know, it's a really big part of who I am. So we did, we did choose to do that. And, and basically we said, that's our, that's our decision. You know, do you think that that may have an impact on the amount of time that we will wait? And we were told, yes, I think that you will, we, we don't know for sure, but we think it's likely that you'll wait longer because you disclose that you're trans in the book and that you're a queer couple. And that's something that we had also heard really for me, what it came down to was it was what was important to me was what was important to Liam. And the idea that this thing about himself being trans that is so much part of why you're wonderful and great would you would see it as an obstacle or you would be made to feel that it would be um, harmful to in our to our family or our desire to become parents like that. I think that is a 
I don't know. It was just um, it, it that my heart went out to you in that. And it's one of those things as a couple where all I want to do is make make it not feel heavy or complicated. And and you just can't. That's life, you know? What was amazing, what was astounding um, was when we did eventually talk to Jude's birth mom, she told us, hey, in your book, you said that you're trans. Um, and <laughs> I know that because of who you are, you will support this child no matter what. You know, if he's if he's gay, if she's she, if they're they, you know, whatever, this child, whoever this child is, you will love them and support them. And that's what I, that's what I want. And it was just, I could not have been more wrong about, about everything, about people, about the world, about whether or not miracles happen. <laughs> I have a question just in, in thinking about, um, you know, the words you wanted to use in your family? Like when you thought about how you wanted to, what what pronouns you wanted to use for Jude or the names you wanted to use, to, like sort of um, prompt Jude to use for each of you. What, what was the conversation like about that? Jude is a boy for now. That's how we talk That's about Jude. That's how we talk about him. Is mm -hmm. like, he's our son for now. And it's, you know, maybe Jude will be... Um, uh, cisgender and straight and a, a, a total bro. And I would delight in that. That would be so fun. Um, and I think that um, it's also possible that he will eventually come out as non-binary or transgender. He might be identify as a man, but be gay. Like there's a million different ways that, um, that, that identity can be formed. So we talk about Jude as being a boy for now. Um, before, before we had Jude and we, when we shared with, you know, some friends, um, and family that we were planning to move forward with adoption, people pretty quickly assumed, oh, so you'll probably use um, they, them for your baby, right? Like you'll probably, you know, do non-binary non um, pronouns and maybe name. And what always- And also you will only buy gray baby clothes right. and they will- <laughs> And they, um, you know, anything that's traditionally masculine or feminine will be shunned from your home. And actually, we're kind of more like gender maximalists. We just have, we, we, we find it fun and it's playful. Um, and kids, I want whatever kid we have to feel comfortable to play and dabble and try things on. But the thing about that is being non-binary is a, a full gender. It's its own thing. So no matter what, you're gendering your kid. There's no way around it, even if you they even if they're a they them. That that's mm. a gender. Um, you know, so it's just this interesting moment where I was like, yeah, actually we're not gonna do that. Um, we're gonna go with, you know, male assigned at birth sounds so cold, so we'll go with boy for now. Um, and we'll just keep the door super open. Um I'm open to the fact that maybe it will eventually keep us up at night, but for now, the fact that this kid loves trucks does not keep us up at night as like this is a failure of our queer progressive values that he loves this um traditionally masculine gendered thing, you know? Because we're like, you know, you had the, you had a little, uh, you have a basket of dolls, you have trucks, you're picking the truck, you're picking the truck, that's great. 
From WNYC, that was Death, Sex, and Money. It's hosted by Anna Sale. That episode was produced by Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz and Katie Bishop. Here to introduce our next podcast is producer Julian Uzielli. Hey, Julian. Hey, Leah. And by the way, shout out to your family for appearing in our little nature documentary at the start of today's show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank your daughter for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will. That was our daughter, Sophie, uh, making the cute baby noises. Uh, and she's actually indirectly responsible for this next podcast pick. Oh, great. So last year, when I found out that I was going to be a dad, I started thinking more about the sort of thorny questions that parents have to think about, you know, like... How do I explain the climate crisis without giving my kid an anxiety disorder? Or uh, what do I tell them when they ask why bad things happen to good people? Like those kinds of questions. Yeah, those are some heavy questions. I can't wait for the answers because I would like to know those myself. <laughs> so when you figure it out. But it sounds I'll like you, you were know. you were looking for some guidance. Yeah, exactly. And so I was thinking about all this stuff and I started looking to parenting podcasts to see what other parents were talking about. I had this new interest, obviously, in, in those conversations. So I found this podcast hosted by these three dads who hash out one of these types of questions every week. It's called Dear Old Dads. And they all had really different upbringings and have pretty different parenting styles. So it's really interesting and often really funny to hear them chew over these issues and, and like argue with each other about <laughs> what is the right approach. Um, so the episode we're going to hear is dealing with the question of how far to go in encouraging your kid to follow their dreams. So, okay. you know, we all grew up with these familiar messages like you can do anything you set your mind to <laughs> or find your passion and make it your career. Right. Shoot for the moon. Even if you'll miss, you'll land among the stars. <laughs> exactly. But then, you know, we grow up and we know that real life isn't always like that. This episode really resonated with me. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. So I wanted to share it. Okay, great. Let's listen now. This is Dear Old Dads. That's a great asset to have is the ability to quit because it actually means that you might be able to not waste time on something you're not going to be successful at and transition over to something you will be successful at. Like it's a, it's a real thing, but I don't know what that line is. What's how are you going to know if your kid's like, ah, first day of school, I quit. I can't do this. This sucks. It's too hard. You know, there's certain amount of that feeling that's got to be natural when you enter a new environment, a new challenge of like, actually, I can't do this. And how much of that should you tough through? And is it our role or the family's role to encourage that or not? You know, that those are all tough questions, I think. Yeah, I, I think as my kids are approaching college age and, and thinking about uh, two of them thinking about what their next steps are, I, I've thought about this a bit and I'm OK with the kids. I guess I want to be a place for the kids where they have a kind of safety net that I didn't have, because not because he didn't want to provide it, just because financially he couldn't, that I didn't have, where the kids can explore different avenues to success. But all of those avenues have to be, in my mind at least, they have to be tied in with some realistic point of potential independence. Do you know what I mean? So like, all right, if you want to go to college and you discover that you know, you're three quarters of the way through and you just absolutely hate what you're doing and you want to change majors. Like, for example, mm -hmm. I don't know, let's say you were Tom and you decided your senior year of college that you <laughs> didn't actually want to be a teacher, a high school teacher, and you'd spent an enormous amount of time and energy and resources finishing your education. I want my kids to be able to turn to me and say, all right, look, I really thought I wanted that and I don't want that and I want to do something different. 
and it is a tough question because there needs to be a finite amount of do-overs, right? Like I'm, I don't want to like sponsor a series of endless mulligans and create this sort of like failure to launch kid. But I think that it's more than one, you know what I mean? It's more than one opportunity to rewrite yourself because as you get older, your chance to rewrite yourself just vanishes. Mm-hmm. Like you, you right. like to hit that big reset button in your life. It like, unless you get very lucky or, you know, financially are independent, your opportunity to just like rewrite the story of your life and the directionality of your life that vanishes as soon as you have, you know, a home and kids and, you know, these various financial responsibilities that are going to make that kind of like non-conservative approach to your, to your life path impossible. So I, I think about that too. And it's like, I want my kids to go to, go to college. I think college is still the primary path that leads to the greatest financial independence that I, I really want them to achieve. Mm, you think so? Yeah. For the most part, unless they go into the trades, I think the trades are another, a, another very viable opportunity for them to um, be financially independent. Any, some kind of, a, some kind of either, um, post some kind of post-secondary education or training, I think is absolutely necessary. What I would not sponsor for my kids is, hey, you're out of high school, you don't know who you are, and you don't know what you want to be, and you're not working on it. Mm, and you're not right. doing anything. You're not like there's no like I'm not I'm unwilling to sponsor laying around not moving forward. Like yeah. that doesn't happen. You want to you want to quit college and become a plumber? Fine. That's great. Let's enroll you in the plumbing trade schools. I don't know anything about them, but let's do it. Let's get your apprenticeship. I'll buy your tools. I'm on it, but you've got to be working towards something. And, and I think there's a limited, but non-zero number of like legitimate mulligans the kids can take. That's exactly what I'm struggling with, Tom, is because there's a lot of language. And look, when I'm wrong about something, I know I'm wrong about it because of how strong a reaction I have to normal statements, right? <laughs> Like when I'm wrong, someone will be like, well, this is an idea to consider. And I'll be like, you, and they'll be like, oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, I'm just dealing with some cognitive dissonance. And I actually sent you guys the clip. There's this talk this woman gives that I, I find very challenging where she talked about like, there is a false pretense that everyone has a thing they're good at and you have to follow yeah. that passion. And not only do you follow that passion, but you commodify it. And then not mm-hmm. only do you commodify it because you become the top of your field. And then not only do you become the top of your field, but then you have to teach others and then you have to raise others up and then you build a legacy and like this, this therefore, therefore, therefore. Yeah. And I, you know, when you say things like we, they have to be moving forward, I feel that so strongly, Tom. I, I feel that down to the very core of my bones. But because of the people I've dealt with in my life and in my family, there are some people who don't have a thing. <laughs> and I don't I don't know what we do if our yeah. kids don't have oh, a I, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, know, yeah, I, I mean, don't want to make my kid feel in a constant state of failure. And I think if we say you got to be moving forward, but they don't know where they're moving forward to, we have just told them like, just so you know, right now you're a failure and I won't consider you a success until you've done <laughs> X. Yeah. But, but all right. So I, and I think I actually sent you that video. Like I think the video that you're referring yeah, to. Yeah. You I sent, sent it, it to me. To, That's right. Yeah. I sent it to you. I sent it to you because I agree with that sentiment that because I think that it's a mistake to confuse your work with your life's purpose, 
I think that that is, I think, you know, and I, and this is like a huge pet peeve of mine. And I know people are going to get like, I'm going to get on it. But like, I, again, I look at the language that we use and I see how much the language that we use tells us about what we value. And one great example of that is watch, and nobody does this anymore, but like watch the news and watch anybody on the street no. being interviewed, yeah, we'll right? Not do it. <laughs> it'll say, it'll say when they interview the man on the street, it'll say their name and it'll say what they do underneath oh. them. It'll say, you know, oh, we interviewed uh, Tom Curry, banker. And it says what they do, because for a long time, what we do is this thing that defines who we are, even though that little subline has nothing to do with what they're interviewing. Oh, uh, what did you think about the earthquake that took seven lives in your neighborhood yesterday? Interview Tom Curry, local resident banker. It, <laughs> it, it, that's a very common thing that you'll see. And I think it's important because we have for such a long time confused what we do with like our purpose. And I think that that video that you're referring to really kind of attacks the conflation of what we do to be financially independent with who we are and what our purpose is. I think the reality is for a lot of people, there's no purpose and that's okay. It really has to be okay that the purpose of some people's lives is to lead a good, happy, fulfilled life. And for some people that might mean just coming home from work and loving their family and playing board games and watching Netflix. And that needs to be a way that we accept a, a, a fulfilled life. Cause that's a lot of people, man. That was a clip from the podcast, Dear Old Dads. It's created and hosted by Thomas Smith, Tom Curry, and Eli Bosnick. You know what people don't talk about enough? What childbirth actually does to a person's body. You've basically just undergone a major surgery, possibly without any pain medication. You've probably lost at least some blood, and that's all without any serious complications. It takes months to fully heal, and your body may never go back to the way it looked and felt before. And despite what certain mommy influencers would have you believe, people who just gave birth do not usually look like they've had a professional hair and makeup job. The podcast Embodied released a two-part episode about the realities of postpartum life. We're going to listen to a little bit from part one now. And just a warning, this story includes discussion about pregnancy loss. I thought certainly I could find some visual representation of what my body looked like in those moments or perhaps what it would look like down the road. And unfortunately, the images that Google returned for me then hundreds, probably thousands of results, not one image that returned was beautiful, was positive in any kind of way. Ash Luna is a photographer. When they were 17 weeks into their second pregnancy, Ash learned that they were carrying twins. At 19 weeks, they were diagnosed with twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome, had to have an emergent surgery, and only one of their daughters, named Nova, survived. Finding myself in this space where I felt, you know, quite alone and unsure about my physical body and what our story was even going to be uh, really sparked something in me to find the space 
where those other people existed, knowing that as alone as I felt in those moments, I certainly couldn't be the only one who was navigating that space. And you told a story that I read about um, during your grieving and healing process, turning to Google at one point to look up cesarean scars. Um, Take me into that moment. What inspired you to do that Google search and what you found when you did it? Absolutely. I was sitting up one night while my surviving daughter Nova was in the NICU and very often would just hop online and try to do something productive to distract myself or bore myself um, to a place where I could try to get some rest. And that day was just feeling really difficult about my own body, having had an unexpected emergency cesarean um, that had some complications and had to be revised and was still really struggling to heal. And unfortunately, the images that Google returned for me were alarming. It was either those beach body magazine cover images or images that were really kind of grotesque and medicalized or lots of ads showing bodies that looked more like mine that were actually like adverts for plastic surgeons Mm. um, doing, you know, mom body makeovers and that sort of thing. That moment came at an interesting point in Ash's professional journey. They'd spent years working as a pinup and boudoir photographer, hearing dozens of women talk about their own poor body image and not feeling at home in their skin. Before Ash's second postpartum experience, they couldn't really relate, but now they could. And with those thoughts and experiences, their next personal and professional chapter began, the fourth trimester bodies project. It's a documentary photo project that's working to start conversations with postpartum folks about their relationships to their bodies, communities, families, and selves. It's also become a podcast and a book. And it all started with a self-portrait of Ash in their underwear. So that photo was taken in my studio just a few months after Nova came home from NICU. Um, As a self-employed person, I had to return to work um, pretty much straight away and was working in tandem with Nova and caring for her medical needs, but had begun talking to my studio mate and business partner at the time about wanting to create some kind of representation that didn't exist. And one day in the midst of those conversations, she challenged me to just do it. Like, why are you talking about this? You need to just do it. And I think I realized as a person who doesn't particularly enjoy being on the other side of the camera that I did just need to do it right then, or I never would. And so without too much production or planning, stripped down to my underwear, um, I love to jokingly out myself that if you look closely, it's like a super ratty pair of underwear that I never would have chosen ever for people to see, let alone be photographed in. Um, But there we were. So the photo is kind of a close crop of my shoulders um, down to just below my cesarean scar. Um, And Nova is cradled across my bare chest in closely. There's details in that photo that I think other people don't ever see. Um, You can see some of Nova's brain injury scars. You can see a necklace that is representing um, Nova's twin who, who passed away. So there's little details there that I see that, you know, are are big markers of where we were then and looking back on those things now to see how we've, how far we've come, you know, is, is really remarkable, but it really froze a moment in time that was painful and vulnerable and empowering all the same. 
So you have photographed more than 4,000 families at this point, and there are a number of photographs in your collection of folks who have experienced pregnancy loss. And in some, they're holding a stuffed animal, and others um, maybe holding an, an older child. And in the caption, you learn that they experienced an earlier pregnancy loss. I'd love for you to take us into the process of those photo shoots and, and what you heard from folks about the physical experience of postpartum after a pregnancy loss. Absolutely. It's a challenge, you know, having these physical markers of this experience and not, you know, the baby in your arms to show for it, I think is is painful for folks in a wide range of emotions and experiences. For me, really early on decided to have conversations with the people who were coming to photograph these particular sessions, all of the sessions, but particularly when we knew there was a loss involved and encourage them to think about how they would like to represent the baby that they had lost, the pregnancy that they had lost in a way that was meaningful to them versus, you know, in some artistic way that I had dreamt up. Because particularly for folks who gave birth in hospitals, you know, we heard this story time and again, and I lived a version of it myself, where you go in pregnant expecting to leave with your baby and go on with your life. And the physical act of having to leave the hospital and go into the hospital pregnant and then leave the hospital alone really was kind of a breaking point for a lot of the parents that I've worked with. And I think that they found in time getting a stuffed animal to signify that child or a piece of jewelry or a photograph if they'd been fortunate enough to be able to capture some moments together. That marker, you know, was a more private depiction of the child that they had always hoped their friends and family members would see. From WUNC, that was the podcast Embodied. It's hosted by Anita Rao, and that episode was produced by Kaya Finley. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. For people who can't or choose not to have kids of their own, another option is to become a foster parent. But no matter where you live, it's an unfortunate reality of the foster system that most foster parents are more interested in taking on younger kids than teenagers. Slate has a parenting podcast called Mom and Dad Are Fighting, where listeners can write in with their parenting questions. And in a recent episode, a listener asked about this issue. Let's listen. Dear Mom and Dad, my partner and I have been thinking a lot about our family recently and have decided that becoming foster parents might be the right move for us. As much as I love interacting with my little nieces and nephews, I think I'm better suited for caring for older kids or teens. I was a camp counselor for a while and strongly considered becoming a high school teacher. I'd love any advice for caring for teens, especially if you're not a parent and haven't been a caregiver before. A lot of the foster parent resources are helpful, but seem to be geared for younger kids. What else should we know? 
Signed, wannabe foster parent. Jamila, what do you think? I think you all should seriously consider this. There are so many young people that are in foster care, uh, particularly older teenagers and older kids that don't get you know, swooped up the same way that babies and toddlers do. Um, I think that you can start, We, I mean, we have an actual expert here, so I won't say too much, but I would say you can start reading things about child development for older kids, you know, to prepare yourself. And you should be reading articles in the newspaper about the lives of teens. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that's come out about teens in the past few years in terms of their mental health, their relationship to social media, how they're faring during this pandemic. Put teens on your radar in a meaningful way. And if this is something you all are serious about, then you should go for it. Oh, absolutely. Evan, maybe before we kind of get into you addressing this question head on, could you talk a little bit about why you you entered the, the foster parent zone in the first place? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so my first job out of college was a residential program, like a group home for teenagers. And it was a really meaningful job. It was a really tough job to do um, when I was so young. And my like takeaway was I just wanted to take them all home. (laughs) (laughs) So I had in the back of my mind, um, you know, even early when I met my wife, I just said, this is something I've always wanted to do is foster teens specifically. We weren't able to become parents and, uh, you know, through the traditional way. And so, you know, we had thought that we would do that first and we just moved right on to step two, which was fostering teens. One of the most amazing experiences in my life, one of the most fun experiences in my life. I think people talk about fostering as if you're, you know, you're a martyr and you're you know, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you're really giving something back, which right. you absolutely are. But teens are so interesting. They're so fun. They have such great insights. It's you're learning about a, a whole other person And unlike a young kid, they can really tell you about themselves and bring you into their world in this amazing way that I really loved. So what was like the first thing you did once you decided, okay, I am going to become a foster parent? Like, where do you where to begin? So we got in touch with the agency. There was one agency in our local area. This was in California at the time that was LGBT friendly, which was important to my family. They basically were like, Yes, definitely. You want to foster teens. Absolutely. They they got yeah. the process rolling almost, you know, more quickly than we, you know, than we anticipated. It was like, get you in, get you doing this. How quickly are we talking? I think that they found a teen for us before we were done with the training. Hmm. <laughs> so it was really quick. I was actually... Um, when our, our first foster kid came to to stay in our home, I had been visiting my brother <laughs> because I was trying to do that before we started the fostering was have a big, you know, trip over to the East Coast. Yeah. And we had a kid in the house before I got back. Wow. Um, one great thing about fostering teens, especially slightly older teens, is you can leave them at home and right. like have a date with your significant other. Like you can't leave them at home all the time, but like yeah, yeah. You, it, it's very conducive to having something like a life 
a normal life. You can continue to work. You know, we we all worked full time. You know, it's what you need is to is to like them, <laughs> you know, and I know that sounds so stupid, but you need to try and be interested in their interests. You need to try and let them show you the, the thing that they're so fascinated by, whether it's, you know, you may think it's really silly. It, it's a YouTuber or it's a a video game or, or whatever it is, but you need to really try and share that with them and to start from a place of connecting with them. Because unlike a little kid, you're not connecting over the fact that, you know, you're feeding them every single meal or you're, you know, mm -hmm. getting them dressed or whatever. The most important thing is to to start as early as possible. And, you know, they're very awkward. They're very scared to come out of their room sometimes on the first couple of days. Mm -hmm. So you just have to be that person who is not being overbearing, but, you know, knocking on the door, drawing them out, encouraging them to feel comfortable and to start to you know, form a relationship with you. And and for teens, I really think that the relationship is everything. They're old enough to set their own priorities in life. They're old enough to know what problems they have to work on. You have to provide them with a solid connection with an adult that is going to let them use that to do what they want to do with their lives. What did you do to prepare for like, whoa, there's just going to be like a full person living in our midst? Is there is there anything, you know, yes, you can read and yes, you can do the training and stuff, but like any kind of internal work that you had to do to integrate a, a new member of the family with such, you know, speed? I mean, I definitely think that uh, the question asker mentioned being a, a teacher, like having some, even if it's just with relatives, having some like comfort with the process of getting to know a teen is, I would say, really important. I think the most important thing is to is to understand that you need to kind of go to them first. Um, and then the other thing is, I think people don't realize how how dumb they are, how young they are. You know what I mean? You get like kind of a tough facade. But the, the second you break through it, they're just so wanting to be loved and mm -hmm. wanting to be accepted that you can really crush that very much more easily than you think. So so really taking that seriously once they start to open up to you and realizing what a kind of precious thing that is. From Slate, that was Mom and Dad Are Fighting. It's hosted by Jamila Lemieux, Zach Rosen, and Elizabeth Newcamp. Their guest in that episode was Evan Urquhart. That episode was produced by Rosemary Belson and Maura Curry. Bryson Williams MacArthur was born with a rare genetic disorder so rare that by the time doctors were finally able to diagnose him, he was a teenager. It's a developmental disorder that means Bryson is unable to speak, walk, or feed himself. But despite his challenges, Bryson is a happy kid. His dad, Keith MacArthur, hosts the CBC podcast, Unlocking Bryson's Brain. It's about his family's search for a cure and what life is like when you're raising a kid with a severe disability. We're going to hear a bit of that day-to-day -day life now. Here's Keith. We try to create the best possible, most normal possible life for both our kids. We take them to the playground and the science center and Canada's Wonderland. We go on family vacations to cottages and Disney World and even Europe. We know it's important to have this family time, but getting Bryson in and out of his oversized car seat 
and into his collapsible wheelchair and navigating public spaces that aren't as accessible as they should be, it's exhausting. And sometimes, it's heartbreaking. One of the first times we try to fly with Bryson, he decides he wants to kick the seat in front of him. So we spend the entire flight trying to hold down his legs and apologizing to the impatient businessman in front of us. After that, we always make special arrangements when we fly. I usually sit beside Bryson, and Laura sits in front of him, taking the brunt of his kicks. There's this sound Bryson makes. I sometimes call it singing, but it's really more of a happy wail, if that makes sense. He can get pretty loud, and sometimes it... Sometimes it makes having a conversation near Bryson impossible. And as much as Bryson seems to enjoy going to the movies, we don't want his singing to disturb the rest of the theater. So we take turns missing big chunks of the movie while we walk with him in the lobby until he's finished expressing himself. In restaurants, Bryson can be especially loud and restless. More than once, he's used his hands or feet to knock a plate off the table where it smashes on the floor. The staff are usually patient and kind, but that's not always the case with our fellow diners. One time, we hear a young couple ask not to be seated near Bryson. Another time, an older woman is so offended by Bryson's singing that she takes it upon herself to nastily mimic Bryson's sounds throughout the meal. And then there's the time we take our boys to a new Thai-slash-Japanese restaurant in our neighborhood. It's all you can taste. You order what you want from the menu, and they bring it to your table. For Bryson, we bring a thermos of macaroni and cheese because it can be hard to find food he can eat in restaurants. We order our first round of food, and it comes quickly. Tom Yum soup, sushi, green curry chicken, and spicy octopus. We order the next round. Mango chicken comes quickly, but we wait almost an hour for the rest of the food. Despite the wait, the kids are in good spirits. Connor is making up a variation on Pokemon he calls Connormon. And Bryson is communicating in the only way he knows how, through his songful, deep-throated vocalizations. A manager drops by. I assume she's there to apologize for the delay. She's not. You need to tell your son to be quiet, she says, waving in Bryson's direction. Other guests are complaining that they can't enjoy their meals in peace. We're stunned. We point out what we think should be obvious, that Bryson has severe mental and physical disabilities, and we can't just tell him to be quiet. But the manager shrugs us off. More than one table has complained, she says. We ask her to put the rest of our meal in takeout containers, and we leave. So, yeah, people can be jerks. But there are good people too, lots of them. Another time, another restaurant. Guests complain about Bryson's noise and say we should have to leave. Instead, the owner tells them Bryson has every right to stay, but they are no longer welcome. The people who just smile at Bryson when we walk by on the street or the grocery store, those people warm my heart. And there's a surprising number of people who ask if they can pray for Bryson, especially when we're traveling in the States. Sometimes it's awkward, like the time at the Orlando IHOP when they held Bryson's hands during a prayer that went on for nearly five minutes. But 
I know they mean well. There have been so many wonderful teachers, doctors, waiters, and caregivers in Bryson's life that I can't mention them all, but I've got a single out too. So what do you want, a mohawk? <laughs> Suzanne cuts Bryson's hair, which, I don't know, maybe sounds like not a big deal, but believe me, uh-huh. it's a big deal. Bryson, I got you. There you go. For the first seven years of Bryson's life, haircuts were a harrowing experience. He hated them. He would scream and shake his head and try to swat away the scissors with his hands. But with Suzanne, it's different. She spends time with him before she starts cutting his hair, talking to him, telling him what she's going to do. We're going to do a nice short haircut so it's nice and easy. And it works. Bryson now sits calmly while Suzanne uses scissors and even clippers in his hair. Let's do the clippers. And then there's Edna. You're happy now? You're happy? (laughs) You're smiling. When Bryson was three, Laura went back to work in a children's hospital. So Edna has worked with us as Bryson's tough but gentle caregiver for more than a decade. Edna, you've been here for 10 years. (laughs) Yeah, 10 years. Over time, she's become a third parent to Bryson. She's part of our family. And sometimes she understands Bryson's complex needs better than we do. You didn't eat your lunch today. That's not good. You should eat all your food and milk. Drink your milk. Edna grew up in the Philippines, the fourth of ten children. Her mom was 47 when she gave birth to her last child, a daughter who was born with serious medical challenges. But when she was three years, she passed away. Yeah, so um, that's why it's so close to with the special needs kids. So if I see if I see that kind of kids, and I love, I like, I feel so bad because I'm gonna miss my my sister. Yeah. What was your sister's name? Janet. Yeah, Janet. Janet. From CBC Podcasts, that was Unlocking Bryson's Brain. It's hosted and written by Keith MacArthur. It's produced by Graham McDonald with story editing by Chris Oak. We live in a culture obsessed with physical appearance. Unobtainable beauty standards are everywhere you look, from TV to magazines to social media. And that can be tough to deal with when you're trying to raise confident kids. There are a lot of popular misconceptions out there about body weight and health. Like the idea that if a person is fat, that automatically means they are unhealthy. It's a common trope reinforced by the culture we live in. But it's not necessarily true. Virginia Soul Smith is the author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And she appeared on the parenting podcast, What Fresh Hell, to talk about it. Let's listen. Virginia, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about correlation and causation, because if you haven't been introduced to this topic before, like Margaret was saying in the first segment, you might be like, but being fat is unhealthy. And 
you really drilled down the studies in this book that show that there is maybe correlation, but there's not causation, which is what we have been led to believe. Can you explain the difference? Yeah. So causation is when you can say very definitively that this behavior or this action, this trait causes this health condition. And the way science works, we can almost never say this, right? Like there's very few health conditions where we can say like, this is the cause of this. So what we have is decades of research showing a correlation where folks in larger bodies are more likely to have certain what we consider weight-linked health conditions, diabetes, heart disease, etc. But that doesn't mean that the higher body weight is the reason they have those health conditions. It's not necessarily the root cause. And this is really important to sort of grasp. So it could be that the weight is simply a, another thing that's happening, right? Like this population tends to be in bigger bodies and they also tend to have this health condition, but the two things are totally unrelated. It could also be that there's some shared root cause that's contributing to a larger body weight and the health condition. We think this might be going on in something like PCOS maybe, where you see body size go up sometimes and you see the PCOS, but it's not that the body size itself is causing it. It's that there's some underlining hormonal things going on that are driving both pathways. There's a couple different ways this can play out, but in every scenario, lowering body weight will not solve the health issue because body weight is not the cause of the health issue. So that's what's important to understand is what we have done as a culture in our entire medical system is anytime there's a weight-linked health condition, the doctor says, lose weight and your health will improve. And what's probably happening when they see some of those benefits is that people changed lifestyle habits, like maybe they started exercising more, which we know does have a causal relationship with improving lots of health outcomes. But you can get the benefits, those health benefits of lowering your blood pressure, your cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera, by exercising, even if you don't lose weight. So if we were only to say it was successful if you lost weight, you might stop exercising, right? Because you'd be like, well, I didn't lose weight because most people won't lose weight exercising. And so it's not worth doing. But actually, you're missing out on the true health benefits of that lifestyle change because you're making it all about weight. So this is where it's just really about understanding that these Body size is one trait. It's one thing going on with us, but it is not the whole story. And when we keep focusing there, we're actually underserving our health because we're missing the whole larger constellation of issues that we're likely dealing with. Yeah, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but like I want to put the chip in people's heads and be like, really, guys, <laughs> we're not joking. This is actually true. The other piece of this is there's lots of research showing that there are times that higher body weight is good for your health, and we don't hear about that enough. I mean, in the research, they call it the obesity paradox, which right there, you see the stigma embedded, right? Because it's like they're calling it a paradox because they can't imagine. It must be a paradox because one of the things is bad. Right. right. <laughs> what we see is that being in a larger body, you're less likely to get osteoporosis. People in larger bodies do better after heart surgery. They do better with cancer treatments. There's a couple of different things like that that are really powerful and life-sustaining health benefits, not just like a little mild change, like a major change. And again, this is a correlation, right? So it could be that the body weight has nothing to do with these benefits, or it could be that weight is sometimes truly protective. Either way, putting people on diets is not going to do anything to promote health in those scenarios. And, so. and realistically is not going to change anyone's weight. That's the other thing that I think is pretty radical. And 
we did an episode a long time ago called Let's Not Care What We Weigh. And like, can we just get to a point in our lives where this is no longer a factor? This is a number we no longer think about. And I think it's been a journey, but I know for myself that it's something that I'm just like, the amount of hours that I have spent thinking about my weight, if only I could have them back. And I have kids and now obviously like this is, I want to break some of the patterns that I have been exposed to. And so let's talk a little bit about how anti-fat bias shows up in our kids and in our lives. And I think many of them are fairly obvious. You know, I know there are certain things about not talking about food as having moral values and trying not to greet people and talking about weight. But what are some other ways that anti-fat bias is creeping into our language and our interactions with our kids? I think the family dinner table is a great place to start. I mean, you mentioned the good foods and bad foods thing, but it's also stuff like, you know, if one of the parents is dieting and not eating certain foods, kids pick up on that. Even if you're not telling the kids they can't eat carbs, they know if mom or dad isn't eating carbs. And that is something they really notice. It also, you know, in terms of our kids' lives, it shows up in school, unfortunately. Most of our health and nutrition programming in schools is based around an obesity prevention model. So kids are going to start learning very early. I just got a note from a parent today saying, you know, my daughter's in high school and she got a calorie counting assignment in health class. This is really common that they give kids calorie logs and tell them to track everything they eat for two weeks and count like. This is literally teaching children eating disorder behavior. <laughs> like, yeah. And like 40-year-old eating disorder behavior, right? That counting calories is the way to be thin. Right, yeah. right. Exactly. Like counting calories is not necessary for anybody's health. And to give this to middle schoolers and high schoolers who are like the most at-risk group for eating disorders, it just blows my mind. And I'm a fan of pushback behavior. Like we talk about homework for first graders. I would just send it back and be like, no, thanks. We don't need to be doing an hour of homework. My kids are outside playing. Thanks. Carolyn Crowther goes back in our household and says, no, thanks. We don't do this kind of behavior. And also the doctor who told me that one of my problems would be solved by losing 25 pounds. I was like, no, thanks. It's not going to happen. I've been working on it for 35 years now. Spoiler alert. It's not happening. I can tell you it's not happening. So what's the other option? Like, I think that's another piece of control is being able to say, like, we're not going to participate in this. Yeah, no, it's definitely with the assignments, I encourage parents to opt out, opt out of the BMI screenings. If your school does those, like weighing kids in gym class is a barbaric practice that we need to be done with. Is that still happening? In at least 26 states, yes. So that's when, like, if you have to keep your kids home that day, do it. That was a clip from the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. It's created and hosted by Margaret Abels and Amy Wilson. And their guest in that episode was Virginia Soul Smith. And that's the show. We heard about a lot of different types of families and parenting situations. If you've got kids of your own, I hope you heard something that resonated with you. And if you don't, enjoy your free time. You can find links and more info on everything we played today at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is new dad Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. And special thanks this week to Danielle Desjardins and Sophie Uzielli. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.